Father's Day. Um, so I want to start with two. Do you want two fathers? Two dad jokes? Do you want two dad jokes? Yeah. Yeah. Why do uh, scuba divers fall backwards into the water? Because if they fell forwards, they can land in the boat. That's a good joke. That's a good joke. What do you call cheese which doesn't belong to you? Natural cheese. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Two Father's Day jokes for you. I need to start by. Um, I'm, I'm hoping they've sorted the sound out because. Uh, I hope they've sorted the sound out because I don't know. But that's, that's nonsense, really. I have a confession to make. I um, A few months ago, I sold you a lie, I told you something that wasn't true, I said to you that there'd be no guarantee. Oh, there you go, perfect. What do I do there? I just walked up. He just walked up. <laughs> I used to work in IT, and that's exactly what you did. You'd walk up to someone and go, oh, my email's not working. Show me the problem. Oh, it's working now. Okay. Yeah. But, um, anyway, I told you a lie. I'm very sorry. It was, I didn't knowingly tell, knowingly tell you a lie, but I told you there'd be no Gary's names since 1992. Now, that isn't actually true. It is, um, and I apologise. I've done some research into that, so I was speaking to someone, they said, surely that's not true. And I said, no, no, it is, it is. And I looked into it, so I went up to the National Statistics website, and I downloaded lots of data, and I trawled through, and actually, there were 23 Gary's named last year. So, I apologise. It's not quite low, but it's down to sort of, it's well off the charts, um, in terms of the number of children before, which is almost, I think, 700,000, um, 23 is still very low. But I apologise, I must confess, I wouldn't want anyone to uh, think that I deliberately misled you. <clears throat> anyway, we're starting a new series, we've recently finished a series in Ephesians, and we're having a short series before we have another short series uh, across the summer, which will be slightly different, and I'm excited and looking forward to that. But this series is called Fight or Fight the Good Fight, uh, which is taken from uh, a verse in 1 Timothy 6.12, which says this, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And we've spoken at length uh, in our Ephesians series about uh, the armour of God and protecting ourselves from attack, being able to stand firm and we're going to continue in that theme slightly, but talking a bit more about fighting against certain things and for certain things in our lives and in our life as a church. And some of these things will be quite personal to you, the things that you need to address as an individual, and some will be more broad that we're saying, this is what we want to set out as we're growing as a church. We want to say, this is what we stand for. We're not for that. We are for this. So that as people join us, as people are added to us as a church and we grow, that people are coming in and everyone knows this is what we're about. And so uh, each week we're going to be looking, as I said, against fighting against this thing and fighting for this thing. And now this morning will be slightly, uh, maybe slightly different than it's an introduction, but this series is an invitation to you to fight the good fight. If you're someone who has made that good confession, you've confessed your faith, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then this is an invitation to you to say, take hold of the eternal life that you've got and fight the good fight. Is this me? I'm calling 
use this for this idea. Because I just turn this off. I'm happy to hold it. There you go. Okay, so where was I? This is we're intentional about this. We're saying this is an invitation to you to fight the good fight. Uh, and so what I want to say to you is as we start, don't be too hard on yourself and don't be too lenient on yourself about these things. So I think sometimes we can we can look at our own lives and we say, Oh, you know what? Actually that's not really a problem. It's only a little bit of a problem for me, I, I can get on with that. Okay. And then other times we go, Oh, I can't believe I've done that again, I messed up, I'm so I'm useless, I could can't do anything. So don't be too hard on yourself and don't be too lenient on yourself. But actually ask the Holy Spirit, ask God to reveal to you areas that you need to change in your life. And so uh, before we look at what we're going to look at this week, what we're fighting for and fighting against, I just want to lay down three foundational uh, things which are essential as we go through this series. They're essential in that we have to get these foundations right and we'll probably touch on these more as we go through the series anyway than we covered by other things. But I just want to try and get uh, at least a base foundation for us to work from. So those things are conflict, how we deal with conflict. So when there's unresolved conflict, it causes things to just grind to a halt in your life. I don't know if, you, if you've experienced that. It, it takes over everything. We need to have, as a church and as individuals, the ability to disagree with each other without hurting the other person. Bill Hybels in his book quotes someone else who says, it's the ability to disagree without drawing blood. Can you disagree with people without drawing blood from them? We want to be a church that's passionate about things. We want to be passionate about seeing lots of people say we want to be passionate about communicating the gospel. Now what happens is sometimes when people are passionate about things, other people will have a passionate response to those things, and then two people are being passionate in the conversation and it digresses from this is what we're talking about to personal attacks. And Bill Hybels, again in his book, he says this, from time to time, passionate discussions digress into personal attacks and real people get really hurt. So what I want to say is we need to have, and we need to work on it each as individuals, is the ability to disagree strongly with someone but not draw blood, not, not personally attack that person but stick to the issue. And now, if you look around the world today, if you look at your Facebook feed or your social media feed, whatever you're on, if you look on the news, that's needed more than ever, and the church should be an example of that. We should be able to disagree on everything from certain points of doctrine, minor points of doctrine, right through to which political party you voted for, and not draw blood from the other person. Okay, so conflict. We need to get a foundation of healthy conflict resolution. Cynicism. We need to deal with this. And this could be a hard one to get past because it often seems so well justified, doesn't it? Oh, I'm only cynical because of this. Um, but there's... I don't want to say too much about it this morning, but what I want to say is cynicism is actually a cheap counterfeit. You might think, oh, I'm only cynical in a healthy way. Well, actually, that's a counterfeit. That's not a real thing. That's a, that's a trick that's been played on you because cynicism is masquerading is pretending to be wisdom. It pretends to be wisdom cynicism, and all it does is it robs you and the people around you that you share it with of faith. 
Cynicism has made up its mind before it even hears what's said. Wisdom listens and makes a sound judgment. Cynicism closes your life off to things. Because you've already... Uh, um, before I've heard it, I know what's going to be said, and I know what my reaction's going to be. That's what cynicism is. Wisdom can hear and make a sound judgment, and is confident to hear, because it's not afraid of being hurt, because it goes, I know, I've got wisdom, I can, I can make the right call. Cynicism closes you off to opportunities that God wants to present to you. So I don't want to say that too much, but if we're to see, we say too much about it, but if we're to see God move in and through this church, there's no place for cynicism. As I said, we'll touch on these things as we go along. It's really buzzing. Don't call me three mics for nothing. And the final thing I want us to get out of just a base foundation on really, and we will touch on these things as we go, is critical thinking. Now, some people have the uncanny ability to find a flaw in an idea, no matter how good it is. And uh, I just want to say, that's a wonderful ability. It's fantastic. Um, my wife has that ability. She, she's not here, so I'm not going to embarrass her, but I can have this wonderful idea and say, this is what we're going to do, it's going to solve all these problems. Yeah, but what about this? Oh, I didn't even think of that. That didn't even occur to me. It's a wonderful ability. It's a wonderful ability to see the weaknesses in things. The issue is, if it's not handled right, if it's not handled well, it can seem very similar and even lead to cynicism. And actually, it's closer to wisdom, but it can seem like cynicism. The issue is not so much the ability in question, being able to see the flaw, but how you handle communicating that and dealing with that information. So Megan and I, we've, we've worked out how this works in our marriage. Oh, I've had this idea. So Megan's like, okay, well let's, let's explore that a little bit. What, what about these things? Have you thought of those? I'm like, instead of being all defensive, because I'm, you know, I've come up with this great idea and been poked holes in, I go, oh, I haven't thought of that. How could we solve that? So Critical thinking, fantastic ability, it's used well. If it's not used well, it just tears people down and causes problems. So if something's presented to you, don't immediately just blurt out the critical thing that you think of it. That's a, a gift that you've given, that you've given to see those flaws. But constructively help develop and improve. Critical thinking can be constructive if it's used to help refine and develop rather than dismiss or tear down. So those are some three, three foundational things. Conflict, cynicism, and critical thinking that we need to say, okay, I want to get right on those three things. They're just like a baseline. But this morning, we're going to look at the first thing that we're fighting against and the first thing that we're fighting for. And that is fighting against being a consumer of church and fighting to be a contributor towards church. As I said, to some degree, this is an introduction. Um, as these ideas will crop up again in our next few weeks. I think this is quite a core theme to what we're going to be looking at. So, fight against consumerism and for contributorism in and towards the church. Now, I did make that word up, okay? So, feel free to ignore that 
and just think of it like this, I don't want to be a consumer of church, I want to be a contributor to church. So what is consumerism? I think that's a, that's a question that often gets used, doesn't it? Oh, we're so consumerist as a society. It gets used as a term, and I think sometimes we don't take the time to explain it. Um, so, it's an, first and foremost, it's an economic theory that people buying things is good for the economy. Now, that's, that's the theory of consumerism, and I wouldn't disagree with that. That's generally, if people buy things, it helps the economy. That's fine. Negatively, and what it's more and more come to mean is a preoccupation with buying or the acquisition of consumer goods. I must consume things. I need this. I need that. I need this. That's consumerism. I must have it. I must have it. More, more, more. How does that impact the church? I'm going to read a a fairly uh, lengthy quote. So try and stay with me, because it's very helpful. And I'll talk to a, a couple of specific points he raises afterwards. This is uh, Dr. Carl Truman. He was uh, giving an interview and he said this about consumerism. In economies that depend upon people buying things, there is a need on the one hand to instill a notion that the meaning of life is to be found in acquiring goods. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, there's a need to constantly recreate markets or find new ones. So you want to say to people, you, you get the meaning in your life is found from buying things, and here's a whole load of things that you never thought you even needed, but actually you do, or to maintain or to achieve a certain status. This has huge impact. And whilst I can't give an exhaustive account here, the following would be examples in no particular order. First, it fuels the infantilization, the childishness of society. Youth is a huge market, and selling goods to such a market not only appears to foster the view among young people that they are of central importance and much wiser than their elders, it's also created a situation where the desire to be young and trendy percolates through all age brackets. This flies in the face of biblical teaching, where a premium is generally placed on age and experience. So saying one of the factors that happens here is because youth is such a big market, Everyone targets their products towards that market, uh, which causes young people to think, okay, well, I'm obviously the most important, the, the one who gets to decide, because everyone's focused on me. And it makes everyone else who's not part of that young market go, well, I want some attention too, so maybe I need to act like them so that I get some attention for me. That's the first thing it does. Secondly, it encourages huge levels of personal debt. Within economic theory, a certain level of personal debt can be good in that it helps fuel the economy, but unsecured debt linked to simply purchasing can very quickly grow to a level where it's hindering the growth of the nation. When the values of culture link status to possessions and when credit is easy to obtain, the recipe for bad debt is clear. And that, of course, is a large part of the economic problem we're facing today. Consumerism says you must own these things to have a certain level of status. And if you don't, then you're not. And so what happens now in our society is you may well get these letters through from, I don't know, Capital One or whoever the, the credit card company is that has chosen your name. It says, you can have this money. 
and oh, well, I could have that, and that means I could buy these things, which means I would look like this and I'd have this status. It's a vicious cycle. It's e- to some people, it's easy to obtain that credit, and it's easy to spend that money you don't actually have, and you get yourself into a problem. So, consumerism encourages high levels of personal debt. Thirdly, and more subtly, it produces the, the notion that truth and ethics are as flexible as the marketplace. Placing individual purchasing power at the heart of the system, public morals are made dangerously vulnerable to all manner of transformation. The right of private choice, the centrality of consent, and the need to avoid hindering the economy are all related to consumerism. If it makes my life better and does not hurt anybody else, how can it be wrong? And if it helps the economy as well, surely it must be right. What does all this mean for the church? When the church, these things become evident like this. There's an obsession with youth culture. A model of ministry has arisen that judges success in terms of numbers and not faithfulness. A culture which disregards the past and a dislike of anything that approaches discipline as the church is there for my needs and to scratch where I am itching. He says this to finish. You can't read that at all, so I'll read it out to you. When the church is just one more product to buy or leave on the shelf, then marketing and not theology become the driving forces in her life. I'll say that again. When the church is just one more product to buy or leave on the shelf, then marketing and not theology become the driving forces in her life. Now, there's like 50 things we could talk about from that quote, uh, and I've chopped some bits out of it. But before we move on to talking about it, there's two things that you need to do. You need to, A, not sh- don't shut down, don't just switch off and this isn't relevant to me, or oh, this is a bit of a telling off, so I'm not going to pay attention. We're looking at attitudes that can and do influence us powerfully without us even being aware. Without us even being aware of it. So that's what we're looking at. So we need to just take a moment to stop and ask the question, God, help me to assess myself. Is this an issue for me? Is this an area I can grow in? Now, for the sake of clarity, I want to say, seeking to engage with young people and appeal to them for the sake of the gospel is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. It's a fantastic thing. I'm hoping that part of what we're doing here this morning is building a church for my grandchildren, if I'm ever blessed to have them. I've got a two and a one-year-old. I'm thinking, I want to build a church that's going to last and be suitable for them to be. So it's not a bad thing to be focused on future generations. And it's not saying that owning nice things is bad. That's not what's being said. What's being said is, if the driving force of your life is to buy and consume and got a new car, but actually I prefer that one, so I need to start saving so I can get my even newer car. If that's the driving force of your life, it's consume, 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 have, have, have. That's what's being spoken against. And what's being spoken against is a disregard of the, for the value of age, experience, and the wisdom that often comes along with that. And that's not an attitude that only affects young people. It cuts both ways, actually, because sometimes older people disregard themselves. They go, oh, well, I've got nothing to offer them, so I'll I'll retire myself. They count themselves out. And the reality is, 
there's a need for older generations to pass on that wisdom, to find ways to speak into younger generations. More and more in my own life, I'm, I value people who've stayed the course. Or I look at and go, man, you're not just saying something really exciting and inspirational, you've lived it out. Now, hopefully I won't embarrass him by this or make him feel like he's too old, but Andy is older than I am. If you didn't know that, I know it's difficult to look. You know, he's, he's a young-looking guy, and I look like I'm haggard. But um, Andy is a bit older than I am, and I can remember being—I was too young for the youth group when Andy used to help out in the youth group. Um, now he's real, but Andy is a man I seek to emulate in my life because when Andy says he's going to do something. What happens to that thing? It gets done. Okay, so he is someone, and that particular thing is just such a great example. I go, I want to be like Andy with that. I want, if I say I'm going to do something, man, I'm, I'm going to Andy Smith it, I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> so that's not, I'm not saying Andy's old, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, I've seen Andy because of my privilege of knowing him for such a long time. I've seen him from a young age, my young age. Um, Consistently deliver what he said he's going to deliver. And so when he says, This is how you should structure your life in order to do that, I'm going to pay attention because he's doing it. In the church, there should be an appreciation and respect for those who are older. And we should all be concerned with how we go about reaching future generations with the gospel. Like I said, I'm aiming for a church and my grandchildren, but I'm blessed to have them will hear the good news of Jesus Christ in a way that's relevant to them and there'll be older people who can disciple them through whatever the world looks like. Some of the, some of the ways that consumerism affects the church. But how does that land for us? Because I don't think, I think there's some root causes. I think what is the root, original root cause of it is an incorrect view of the church. And an incorrect view of the church leads to an incorrect attitude and action towards the church. At times, we view the church not as the bride of Christ, not as the family into which God has placed us, but as something else. And there's a couple of examples that I want to give us in this fight against consumerism and a fight for contributorism in and towards the church. Sometimes we can view the church as a restaurant. When you go to a restaurant, you pick the food you want, you pick the drink you want, someone brings it to you, someone prepares it for you, someone's gone out and done all the shopping and got the ingredients for those things. You put your money down and you leave. That's it. You, you go, you have your food, you have your drink. And if there's something you don't quite like in your meal, there's, three, there's a few different responses in there, I think there's three responses. You can mention it to your waiter or waitress or server and say, oh, just this isn't quite what I had in mind. You can be a nice, do it nicely. You can complain, and go, excuse me, this isn't, this isn't what I wanted. This is wrong. Uh, or you can just suffer, which I'm sure is probably the most British response. You go, oh, this isn't quite what I wanted. Oh, yes, it's lovely, thank you. Um, so, if I, if I was encouraged you to say mention is the, the one that you want to go for, but 
Some people love to complain, don't they? They love it. They're in a restaurant, they order something, and it's perfect. Now, actually, I wanted three cubes of ice in my drink, not four, um, and they're shouting and they love to complain. And it's true in church, isn't it, as well? Sometimes people love to complain. The worship wasn't quite as good as I hoped it would be. We didn't sing that song that I really like. Sometimes we can treat church like a restaurant. The sermon wasn't the sermon that I wanted that week. It's quite bizarre, really, because we're often much less bashful about our criticism of church than we are of our restaurant food. Maybe it's because we know that you know, it doesn't matter if I skip on the sermon before I serve it to you. It's not making any difference to you. Now, let's be clear. I'm not saying if something's wrong, you don't mention it. If I say something heretical, or if I tell you that there's no Gary's been named since 1992, you're more than welcome to correct me on that. I'm not saying we shouldn't take you know, preferences and comfort people into consideration when we're looking at style things, but what I am saying is that we need to have an attitude towards church that's not like a restaurant. When you come to church, you're expecting every one of your desires to be catered to, your every whim, your every preference, and you're going to complain if that doesn't happen. Church isn't a restaurant, it's more like a family picnic. I don't know what your, oh, that's so tiny, um, sorry, it looks much bigger on my screen. Um, that's a, a verse which I'll read out in a second. I don't know how your family does picnics, but this is how my family did picnics when I was growing up. Uh, and even very recently, to be honest, my mum would prepare food for our family and food for the extended family in case anyone forgot. My auntie would prepare food for her family and the extended family in case anyone forgot. My auntie's daughter would prepare food for her family, her mum's family, to my auntie's family, and the extended family, in case they forgot. There was lots of food at our picnics. 1 Corinthians 14.26 says this, When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, and let all things be done for building up. When you come through those doors on a Sunday morning, and I'm speaking to church members here, when you come through those doors on a Sunday morning, what's in your lunchbox? Have you got, you know, just enough for yourself? Have you got a sandwich that you can share? Or have you got an empty lunchbox and you're saying, I just need to, I'm, I'm not bringing anything. Now sometimes that's okay. I'm not saying every week you have to be coming with, you know, I've got this fantastic bit of the Bible I've been reading and I want to share it with everyone. I'm not saying that. Sometimes being here is a contribution. Particularly, you know, people know you've been going through a tough time. Being here is a contribution. But what are you bringing through the door with you? Are you coming ready to contribute to this meeting? Or are you coming only seeking to receive What's the trend of your church attendance in your life? Sometimes we can view church as waste collection. I don't know how you term this anymore. 
refuse collection. Bin man seems to not be the appropriate term anymore. Refuse collection technician or something. Um, waste management engineer, okay. Every week, mostly on a Wednesday evening, I drag my wheelie bins to the, to the end of my garden and the next day they're emptied by the lovely uh, waste management engineers. Um, who don't judge me even when I forget and chase them in the morning in my hot pyjamas saying, please take my bin. Um, they're fantastic. What? And uh, they do that every week. Now, it would be a bit odd if on Thursday morning there's a little on the door, I'm sorry, Mr. Governor, can I just come in and check that you haven't missed any rubbish? I've, I've noticed that the last few weeks we've had a lot of this kind of rubbish. Can I come in and actually take a look around and see what's causing that? Because I think there might be something not quite right. That would be an odd scenario, wouldn't it? That's why when we view church as refuse collection, we, we make a mistake. Sometimes we can treat church like a wheelie bin. I'm going to put all my rubbish in this, I'm going to bring it on a Sunday and I'll just put it on the end. Okay, now you need to take all that away from me now. Yeah, I know it's the same stuff that was in there. There's too much of it again, but it's okay. You just you take that away from me now. You aren't allowed into my home to check why there's so much of this stuff coming. You see, the trouble is, church isn't like that. It's not a house. It's a, a body. And when you've got a toothache. Your whole body knows about it. Sort of, sort of, uh, this lady here. Again, this is so small. It's, um, thank you, George. What a great job he's doing. Um, you know, she's, her hands are involved, her face is involved, her body's crunched up. You know, if you stub your toe, you don't just go, oh, my toe's really sore, and stand there sort of stoically. Maybe you do, because you're really tough. I'm sorry, I have to move my brain um, But Normally, oh, I've stuck my toe and you're hopping around. Your whole body knows about it when you're in pain. Well, the verse is there. Romans 12, 5 says this. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. When there's a problem in your body, the rest of your body helps. So when you've got a problem, you're part of this body, you can't just bring your rubbish and go, I'm going to leave that there and say, you deal with that. We can't come in and deal with anything else. Actually, we need to be involved in each other's lives. Now, I'm not saying, you know, scatter your rubbish around, but you can have choice individuals who you speak to can speak into your life and help you deal with things. In some measure, your rubbish is my rubbish. Now, I'm not giving you permission to use my wheelie bin, but the problems in your life are my problems too. That's what it means to be part of a church. Our problems are shared. Now we each have an individual responsibility before God to give an account for how we've handled our own lives, what we've done with the life that's been given to us, the gifts that have been given to us. But a big part of that is how have we cared for and encouraged the rest of the body? How we treated and valued each other. We have a value in this church. We have eight values. We have one that's called service. We say we value service. Building a culture of service. It's not right. We imitate 
Yeah. We've imitated Jesus, who took on the nature of a servant, choosing to surrender our lives as instruments to God for him to use as he sees fit, placing his will above our own and building a community by serving others. We need to be looking to how we can serve one another in dealing with issues, in encouraging one another, in coming with something to bring, something to share with our brothers and sisters. We should approach church not as uh, consumers, but as contributors. Because Jesus gave himself up for the church. We are called to do the same. Ephesians 5, 25-27 says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Goes on, it says we might, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus' attitude towards the church is one of sacrificial love, care for her well-being and future, desiring her to move towards increasing maturity, strength, dignity and beauty. What's your attitude towards the church? What's my attitude towards the church? Is it the same? Is it want the church to, to mature? I want the church to be strengthened. I want the church. I, I'm, I care about the church's dignity. I care about the church. Not looking good for appearance's sake, but looking good because it is good. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus, the, the joy that was set before him, endured the shame of the cross. Physical torture. Shame. Like you'll never know. Spiritual agony at the cross. And Jesus is focused on the future joy that is set before him. The joy of a church that is glorious and radiant and effective and magnificent. The people that is one for himself. I want to finish by <clears throat> asking us a series of questions, a checklist almost, and then, as I said, we'll. Uh, it's not great We'll look at some of this stuff in more detail as we go through our series. I want to ask you, ask you to ask yourself these questions and ask God to help you be honest with yourself. First off, am I a consumer of church? Do I respect and value those who are older than I am, both physically and spiritually? Do I treat the church as a restaurant, there to fill my needs and serve my agenda? What is my attitude towards discipline or church being involved in my life? Do I believe church is more than Sunday morning and Wednesday night? If you've got a problem with the church, ask yourself, why am I upset with this church? Is it, or church in general, is it a legitimate issue? Or is it the result of a consumerist view?
Now, I'm not expecting you necessarily to answer fully those questions. This isn't a long enough period of time to really work through those. But I want to say to you, go away, think about those questions, and what are you going to do about it? Will you fight the good fight? As Andy said, and clear that, work with God to clear the pathway, clear that fuel line. Someone shared before we <laughs> were... Um, before we met this morning, a picture of clearing arteries so the blood can flow properly. I'm going to pray to finish. Father, I thank you for your love for us, that you modelled contribution to the cause. You modelled giving when you gave your only son. So that those who trust in him can be saved and added into your family, added into the church, your body, your bride. So I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to have an attitude of contribution where we're seeking to give towards your mission of our lives, of our time, and of our money. Lord, I pray that our attitude would be towards generosity. Father, I pray where we've perhaps been tricked or we've slipped into a consumerist mindset towards the church where we're looking for our needs and our agenda to be met. Lord, help us to have our eyes lifted and fixed onto your agenda. What's your plan and your mission? So we ask all this in your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Come and fill us again with your spirit as we go, that we would each serve you well this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.